0: Greetings and welcome to Broken Boxes podcast. In this episode, we hear interdisciplinary artist Christine Howard Sandoval in conversation with Chinooka luker Christine breaks down the importance of research within her current practice and how her family have become an integral part of her work as she uncovers deeper relationship to her ancestors' pathways throughout California. She reflects on the complexity of connection, disconnection, and reconnection to land that we all face today, and how she uses performance, video surveillance, documentation, and large-scale earthen paintings to expand upon these notions of belonging. Christine implores us to examine the future of art and education and to trust our own speed and trajectory as we navigate the art world, reminding us that culture is not static. Christina is a practicing artist living and working in the unceded territories of the Squamish, tsleil and Muquim First Nations and is an assistant professor of interdisciplinary praxis in the Auden Faculty of Art at Emily Carr University. Christine's work has exhibited nationally and internationally, and she has presented several solo exhibitions and been awarded numerous residencies. She's an enrolled member of the Chalon Nation in Bakersfield, California.
1: Nice to see you, Christine.
2: Nice to uh, we see had,
1: you. We had briefly had a, had a talk with Wave Hill not too long ago. We've had some kind of like interesting conversations i'm excited to jump in and and um, talk with you about art the world all those all those sorts of influences the uh (laughs) the reflector like what it means to like be in the world presently and kind of like strip away some of the illusions of uh, rugged individualism in the framework of like art star bs so I'm just going to start by saying hello. I'm Chinupa Hanska Luger. Uh, Good morning. I'm uh, Mandan Hidatsa Rikarop. I'm from the northern plains. I'm river people from way back. My clan is Awahe, so that's Dripping Earth Clan. I don't know if we've ever had like total formal w- who you are, where you're from, but uh, from North Dakota. But presently, I'm coming to you from um, this is like Tewa, Towa land in Glorieta, New Mexico. But I wanted to uh, have you introduce yourself the way that you're comfortable, and then maybe give our listeners a brief kind of background of your practice, and then uh, we can dive into a conversation.
3: Okay, uh, well, thank you, Ginger and Chanupa, for having me. Um, my name is Christine Howard-Sandoval, and I'm originally from California, so I'm a member of the Cholo Nation and Bakersfield um, and the Chelone are one of the languages of the Ohlone, the greater Ohlone tribe, which st- extends from the North Bay area all the way down to the Central Valley. I was born in San Jose and grew up just literally right in the heart of all of that territory and didn't know it while I was growing up. And so now I find myself kind of making a full circle back to all of that knowledge and those relationships. And um, so I'm Zooming today from the unceded territory of the Squamish, tsleil Tooth, and Musqueam, which is otherwise known as Vancouver, BC. And I'm right on the Pacific Ocean for those of you who don't know um, where that is in Canada. So that to me is really important because we're right north on the Pacific coast. And our history is not only are we coastal people, but we're also inland people. We're one of the few tribes who really kind of resided most of the seasons in the Central Valley and more inland and actually traded a lot with people from the Southwest. We're one of the only, alone people who traded over that pass and really kind of went more West or more east, actually. And uh, that to me is really interesting, too, because the other side of my mom's family is from New Mexico, where you guys are. Um, And from so her family is from Yanito, which is a small village outside of Albuquerque. So there's all these relationships happening and I'm somewhat new to this place. I lived in New York for over 20 years, and then I moved here in 2019 um, to take a position, a faculty position at Emily Carr University. And um, for me, that was part of my intention of coming back to the Pacific Coast. I'd been trying to get out of New York for about five years prior to that. So I feel really lucky, um, not only to be in academia, but also to uh, just come back this way. It's really hard. To come back home. It's really hard to, for so many reasons, climate change, just the price of property, you know, just the precariousness of, of the cost of land right now, which kind of is at the top of my mind today, because we just found out that our house is being sold and we're renters. And so we're about to be uprooted and my studio is here. So that's where I'm, I'm zooming from is my little garage studio. And um so we're going to have to figure it out <laughs> so anyways that's a long-winded way of saying uh this is where i am and this is how i got here
1: that's great that's that's wild too um but there's a property right next door to us that we were trying to uh purchase as well and um we were in conversation with the uh the owner who we bought our property from and uh made an offer and then they kind of disappeared <laughs> like didn't uh respond to our offer and then we finally just got a uh email from them saying that they are working with a realtor and they put it on the market and uh the the cost of it is insane i'm just like that's nuts uh who's our neighbor gonna be i don't know and we have this kind of precarious. Uh, easement that runs up because we have a water tower on our property so there's an easement that runs the length of both of our properties but our driveway kind of goes into it's it's, it is the easement you know it's access to this to this water tower but yeah just thinking of all of those like land related kind of things is is super complicated and I think maybe diving into these notions of land I think that would be a great space to uh, have you introduce your 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 practice. I know you have a lot of work that relates to land. Um, it seems to be something on all of our minds right now. These relationships with land. I would love to hear your uh, uh, how you describe your work.
3: Yeah, I mean, I um, it changes as I learn, but I've been working with you know on the land, in the land, with land-based materials and. Um, really thinking about uh, my family's migration path and that that's been going on for I would say since pretty solidly since about 2016 and also just doing that uh, you know family research uh, storytelling that kind of work outside of an art practice I've been doing you know since I was really young and that, has only recently kind of come together into my art practice. And so I have a material-based practice, which is working with Adobe material, which you guys will know about. I mean, I think it really brings together all desert cultures. um, And it's probably the most sustainable way of architecture and thinking about that material, which comes from the land. It's meant to be temporary. It's meant to be made through an embodied practice, um, stomping the material with your feet, casting the bricks on the land, and then building structures that ultimately then melt and go back to the land. So, all of these things are kind of cyclical um, and they also kind of relate to desert people. They relate to sustainability or this idea of sustainability, which I think is a word that's really emptied of its of its power it's really emptied of its of its significance and meaning i think with within the art world specifically and so that work really comes from my grandmother so my grandmother was a uh, an adobe brick maker and you know my mom's family they were farmers and they were tenders of the land and i really wanted to bring that into my practice when i did a residency at the santa fe art institute and 2017 and uh so that work has been teaching me and going pretty strong since that time it hasn't stopped i thought it would be a one-off you know kind of one 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 project but it was the first time that i brought a lot of my concerns and ideas and research around the land and ecology and climate change uh, in relationship to culture migration and storytelling um, and that was because I invited my mom into the project, which was something that happened over a period of time, where we were working through Google mapping. You know, I was in New York, she was in uh, California, and we were just kind of meeting through an an internet, you know, meeting point. And I was just showing her how to use Google Earth, and we were locating her village and. Then she decided through all of that, you know, through those conversations, they really opened up a lot of personal stories that I had never heard. And she had never really had the opportunity or felt comfortable, or I don't know what it was, but she, she had never told me these really significant stories of her childhood. And then that kind of really guided the project from there on. And she wound up coming out. To Santa Fe and and being with me in the, in the village where she grew up, so that really changed my entire my entire thinking about my practice, um, and it's still it's still kind of unfolding um, this path that I'm going on. Um, so that's it's a land based practice, but it's so much more than that, you know.
1: Yeah, I mean, so much of um, you know the system that we navigate the art world, the industry, the market, all of those sorts of things, it's so much based on like preservation models, right? Like where you preserve these uh, systems and culture is something that isn't about preservation, but is more so about maintenance. So um, having an art practice that adapts through working with materials, what, what you gain um, in that relationship, it just reinforces, I think, an indigenous kind of worldview around relationship being the primary building block of the universe. I think there's a, a focus to, to follow the particle or the, the little thing, you know, that is uh, the building block. And it's like, no, no, no. It's all of that space in between, like the relationships between all of these little things. So it's, it's really fascinating to me to hear uh, how you describe your practice and how land and environment and material influence. Is there anything that you're working on right now that's kind of like a new uh direction in in that uh trajectory?
3: Yeah, I mean, it's funny because I remember when we were at the Diker collection, <laughs> I remember speaking about those objects that were in those really fancy, you know, plexiglass cases and the the museum was really on high alert uh when we broadcasted that we were going to be there and uh you know they were they had all of these ideas about what we were going to do to um, you know really disrespect their museum space but in the end i felt like they learned something i don't think that they it changed who they were but you brought up this idea of preservation in regards to the objects and how they need to be fed and activated and um, you know i've heard you speak about this and it's so anti- antithetical to the art world And it's something that i find you know having a gallery showing in in you know western white spaces it's it's something that's always a part of the pushback Um, especially with this work of adobe that falls apart it crumbles it's really not meant to be preserved you know it's really not a static it's a living material and when you're working with living materials they're going to breathe, they're going to crack, they're going to crumble, they're going to change through the life of that work. And I think, you know, that in relationship to the history of indigenous objects, you know, makes me think about just the whole legacy of salvage anthropology and the way baskets and those kinds of cultural objects were collected through this kind of really insidious idea of salvage anthropology, which is You know, this idea of preserving the memory of a culture that's being erased. Um, And that's really not what we're doing right now as living artists. You know, we're really I feel like every single engagement that I have with an institution, whether it be in academia or as an artist, is always pushing back against this idea idea of preservation and stasis and I I want my work to really embody that but it's and it's a struggle it's a really right now I'm actually going today after this conversation I'm going to uh, pulverize that piece that I made at the San, Santa Fe Art Institute to recycle it back into new work and so a project that I'm working on right now that I'm just starting Although it's been part of my research for a long period of time, is just thinking about the great flood in in Central California. So California is, it's this flood zone which nobody really thinks about because it floods every two hundred years. So you know the amnesia of culture doesn't think in that kind of time frame, and we think in much longer time frames, which is I think a, a major factor of our, of our um, ability to survive. <laughs> But I want to remember this flood um, and I want to remember it through, you know, just elements of the land, but also through this idea of flooding and, and the flooding of consciousness, the flooding of emotion, what it means to exist in a flood. And, you know, we're seeing this happen all over the world right now. Like I'm thinking about uh, what's going on in Pakistan, which is another place that really is a desert place, another another like desert people that are are we have a kinship with, and they're living in waist high water right now, and all of the things that that kind of bears um, for survival, and uh, not that the work is going to be able to really address all those things, but those are those are some of the things I'm thinking about right now.
1: I know you have research as a big part of your of your practice. How overdue is this flood in the Central Valley?
3: Oh, yeah. So it's, got, it's supposed to, like at the very latest of this 200 year, 100, 200, we're overdue, basically. We're overdue. And I think the the latest it would come would be 2000 and, uh, 2040 or something like that, 45. So we've got, what, 20 years. Um, scientists are putting together models of what that means for the developed land right now so i'm looking at all of the the dams all of the dams basically are not built with that in mind that these floodwaters come from you know mountains they come from uh snowmelt they come from obviously the pacific ocean but they also the problem of these dams is it's basically a big bowl, all of, and that's our, what's called our food basket, our bread basket of the world is the Central Valley in California. It's a major area of food production, which also, you know, we can think about indigenous and immigrant rights out there and the labor force that is really being abused. I mean, that's something that's also Really huge in the political realm and the social political realm right now in California.
1: Yeah, I was just doing work with uh, an artist. Well, I wasn't doing work with him. I was hanging out at his studio, uh, Porfirio uh, Gutierrez, and he is Zapotec and uh, comes from a long tradition of weaving. But he he was telling me just about the the total numbers of migrant workers and how there are huge like indigenous communities in that migrant field um, just that they're from uh, Central America, Mexico regions, you know, and um, yeah, just trying to build up those kind of like kinships and relationships uh, through these kind of like geopolitical borders. But this notion around it never once was this idea of like flooding kind of came into, into our conversation, but they are literally living in those uh, those regions, you know, So that would be, that would be kind of fascinating and just exploring our capacity to adapt. Um, and I think that deep time kind of knowledge allows you to, uh, consider that, which is like inconsiderable, you know, like, um, uh, uh, total transformation, you know, of, of landscape and environment, how to sustain, you know, really like what that really means when, (laughs) when sustainability isn't in vogue, but is, uh, necessity based. Yeah, there's kind of a lot of a lot of ideas that could build out of that. Um I'm from a community that's flooded. Uh so the Mandan Hidatsa Arikara reservation like 40 45% of it or something like that is under Lake Sacagawea from a uh, flood. And have been thinking a lot about these ideas uh, especially in relationship to water. I mean we were we are river people. I almost said were because the impact of that flood on like two to, two to three generations, our relationship to the river transformed where it was once, you know, this kind of like this kinship of great appreciation and responsibility around maintaining that relationship. Yeah. And then the effect of flooding, you know, how that uh, at that scale, it, it just kind of like created a hurt between the people and, and their river. And I could see that in the, in the, you know, since my generation and younger, the, there's been a lot more build around reestablishing that that relationship, kind of like finding forgiveness, where it's just like, I know it wasn't your fault, and I know your, your, you were transformed just as much as we were, um, and trying to trying to reestablish a healthy relationship with the with the water. That is that's really interesting thinking about environmental shift and adaptation, cultural adaptation. So. One of the things that has really been kind of sticking with me that I would love for you to kind of describe are some works that I'd seen, which are literally using Adobe as like pigment and doing like large scale illustrations with the with the material. Mm-hmm. Um, could you describe some of that? Because I think that also leans into this idea of like uh, maintenance is required. How do we, as artists, you know, pushing against these things, like you're saying, like, is there a way to make maintenance a part of... work itself where it's like all right here's 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 protocols here's instruction manuals you want to keep it for a long time this is what you have to do anyway please
3: that's really interesting actually just i feel like you just planted a seed in my in my brain with that maintenance protocols with the work um well just to go back to the I, i think we could talk about adaptation at some point too because that came up in our wave hill talk and i want i you know that was a really brief context for conversation. I feel like we didn't get to really have a conversation, but that really stuck in my head when we're thinking about, um, at least thinking about stasis, thinking about Indigenous identity right now in a Western culture that's really kind of urgently trying to consume Indigenous culture in the art world. Um, And so thinking about stasis and preservation and being an artist. I mean, I've been thinking about all of that. but just to give some some context for those those Adobe works, um, the designs, the, the pieces are made on paper. They're really wobbly. They're really unruly. The paper is not backed by anything, and they're just kind of hung in space. And the pattern is taken from these uh, from the architecture of missions. So I've worked with two particular missions, uh, the San Luis Obispo mission, which, you know, at one point in our migration, we were there. Um, So I have family members who were there. And then also at the Mission Soledad, which we have family members who were there as well. Um, and we have stories about that. And the missions have really intense archives, which I'm starting to be able to get ac- you know, access to. We live in, in the benefit of a culture where everything's been digitized. So now I can start to really work with archives from far away. But going there and thinking about those places as physical archives also was really interesting for me. But the the pattern are these architectural flattened really void of any kind of like feeling, they're really geometric and they're really kind of, they're just these that flatten architectural patterns and putting them into these drawings um, compositionally, I'm thinking about how I can use composition, how I can use color, how I can use negative and positive space in the drawings to create a feeling or a composition that speaks about in those ones with the green regeneration. And so those two pieces where I introduced the color, I'm using clay. So air dry clay that has been mixed with a wheat paste and pigment. And then after I've layered the paper with a like a sifted adobe that is like a plaster, I then go over it and rub in this pigment, which is a, is the way that you would color adobe walls. So it's made with the same kind of uh, clay material that seeps into the pores of this earth. And it just allows for all of that cracking. It's the same kind of material that has to harden and dry. And when it cracks, you see the kind of color, the brown color that comes from behind it but usually the way that those colors um the palette of those colors are usually made from like natural clay so you get like really earth tones browns and, and reds and um but i introduced this other material so i could get a really bright green kind of almost fluorescent tea vibrational green um that was coming out of these compositions with the brown cracks And they're really like, these drawings are really kind of like gritty, they're cracked, the materials kind of peeling off, you know, they look like they're about, if you look at them, they're going to fall off the wall, you know, but they're actually really sturdy and resilient and they've, and they've managed to be shipped, you know, from Canada to the U.S. And so I like that. I like that transformation of material where you get this look of precarity and fragility, but actually they're really, really strong architectural and they're quite large. They're, um, they're five by eight feet hung from a cleat on the back. That color really kind of took over my consciousness because I went to Mission Soledad and I did a performance there and I was in this area out like it was outside of the mission property but it had been a part of the mission when it was first being made this is the central valley so the winds are just like blowing it's like it feels like gale force winds are pushing me over performing in the land was really like basically you're trying to work with the wind and there were, it was tilled land in a, in farmland, um, but it was empty kind of, there was nothing growing except for this. There were a few sprouts of green. And I just felt like this site, this particular site was supposed to be the original uh, village where the first inhabitants, the first indigenous inhabitants of the mission kind of came in, built traditional structures that were made out of grass, while they were building the adobe mission and so it held this like really incredible energy and you could you look out and you look at the mountains over there in the in the salinas valley and you the combination of that with the wind and uh, these sprouts um it just became the color palette that i wanted to introduce into these drawings
1: I know performance is a big part of your practice too. Where, what's your comfort level with with performance? Do you? I've seen I've seen kind of like both representations where it's documented through some sort of digital platform and also physically being um, performer in presence of people. I've only seen digital representations. Do you do like uh, live performance as well?
3: Yeah, I guess. I mean, I. It's a performance, but it's always for the camera. So it's always about these worn surveillance cameras, um, the technology of surveillance, which in my case, I attach to my body. Um, and I've done those performances since grad school is really, really where I started working with those materials. And I was dragging cameras off my body and I was in you know abandoned lots. And I was thinking about... Taking on identities like becoming the rat, you know, becoming the urban rat basically, and or becoming like <laughs> a different kind of non-human body with different uh, perspectives. So I was trying to 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 take away the primacy of of looking through a viewfinder and just let my body kind of choreograph the image. Um, and so I also was became really interested in the way that these cameras are used by police as a form of surveilling and, you know, the way that they're attached to their uniforms and capturing the work that they do or these, you know, really, really violent situations. Um, and that was that was when I was in New York and it was, you know, really during Black Lives Matters, was really, uh, I think it was Michael Brown at that time. Um, So there was a lot going on in New York and I was starting to just wear that camera in public space and use the subway as my studio. So I didn't have a studio at that time. But I also, so I never perform in front of people. I just kind of use this as a tool to document my body in space and let it choreograph alongside the land or whatever kind of space that I'm in. Um, and then video editing is, is, is also and sequencing and sound and um, collage and all of that then becomes a part of that in the post-production.
1: Yeah. Have you ever done live, uh, like a live performance? No. I have. I didn't no, like I- it.
3: <laughs> no, I, don't like, I don't imagine I would like it either.
1: it's kind of a it's kind of a strange dynamic that that's at play between performer and audience but i I definitely resonate more so with the digital gathering
3: yeah, you've been doing some new work with green screen recently
1: <laughs> yeah um, that, so how is that? <laughs> That was weird. It was, it was weird doing it that way because usually when I do these performances, I know my audience is the land. So in this instance, it was really kind of built out of necessity as far as the scale that I wanted to engage with the work. I was like, I want these dancers, but I want them to inhabit many, many different environments. And, um, moreover, I wanted the, uh, I wanted the dance to be a superimposition. Like I, I liked the idea of it being superimposed and like leaning into the fact that it's like, I don't know, my son was like, it looks like a bargain commercial. Come on down. Yeah. <laughs> and and I was like, yeah, I, I like that idea. You know, I like the idea of it not being um, like not trying to light it so that it looks like it's right for the landscape that it's that it's filmed on but rather make these like superimposed kind of figures uh and then i can film the land and and uh walk through the land it's it's funny cuz how i'd seen your work was through these kind of like body cam um where you don't actually you, like you might see your feet or your hands but you're not seeing your like body in space you're actually watching how your body moves through space Mm -hmm. and um I thought there was something uh when we started doing this work Ginger and I we were uh, filming on the land like do we do we drive through it do we walk through it do we walk backwards like how do we how do we kind of like create all of these different visual cues that document the land for for the land you Mm -hmm. know as the land rather than um having me as the subject and then we could superimpose the subject onto him. So that was, it was, it was fun, you know, it was a, it was an interesting thing. It was a hard push. I had to like exercise working up towards filming all of that. And, you know, the whole family is there with me. So like, as we're at the studio, you know, the kids are there, they're eating snacks, Ginger's there making sure that all the shots are exactly as they need to be. But there has been like a development within our practice of working with our family, like my, the family being an, an ex, me being an extension of that and and what that looks like. So mm-hmm. and, and I know that's something that you're kind of uh, interested in as well. So I would love to kind of dive into more conversations around uh, that trajectory, like what it means, what a whole person actually is, you know, um,
3: <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't exist. Yeah. Um, I love that Chanupa, so much. And I, I really uh, I love this conversation about, you know, it's a family affair and thinking about how our families. I mean, I for me, I think it was just a, a necessity uh, to invite family. in. like when we went to Soledad, it was a, it was a road trip with my mom and dad. And we went from their house in Southern California. We went to my grandmother's grave, which I had never been to. And so we went there and it was like, you know, this ancestor journey that we were going on. And we, you know, paid our respects. uh, We brought things. And then we kept going and went to Soledad after that. And, you know, so it just felt like there were stories being told in the car, you know, we don't have an easy relationship. I don't have an easy relationship with my parents. And so doing that, inviting them in uh, was really a part of, and has been a part of trying to repair some of those relationships. And it's also trying to repair generational relationships and, and thinking about grief and, you know, when I saw the the green screen videos that you were doing, and I love the comedy of, you know, this idea of it being a, a sales, like I use car sales, but there was also this kind of grief that was there in the fragmentation the you know, the dispossessed body kind of imagining, desiring the land and desiring being there and imagining being there. And I felt like there was a bit of that as well. And so that is I feel like that grief work or that uh, ancestral work is is part of the main reason why I have my family involved in this work and inviting them in. I don't come from a family of artists. I know you come from an amazing family of artists. And so for me. Um, and also none of my family members have gone to you know higher education. So me becoming an artist and, and then also being a, a teacher in higher education is, is has been a real um, difficulty in our in our relationship. So there's this huge gap. So I just feel like I need to repair that in some way. And part of it is inviting them into the process um so that they have a relationship and it's working it's really uh it's it's been amazing <laughs> it's been really really incredible so all of that kind of all of the work is with the idea of um having building on that conversation that my I'm having with my parents and my brother and my aunties and meeting new aunties and and new family members that I'd never met before so it's just been, um, it, that is the other kind of thing that's happening with this work that's just been, to me, that's like, so, I mean, that's the reason why I w- I'm an artist, really. I mean, really, it's the reason why I have to, like, sell work to keep going is because I have to keep this other project going before they die, because it's also about mortality, you know, and, like, dealing with our with our wounds before they go. So there's that, I mean, it's just, like, it's... um. Uh, it's just been so amazing really to have them a part of it.
1: Yeah. And that hits all of the key words of like uh, sustainability and maintenance, you know, (laughs) Um, it's, yeah, I I think a lot of the the perversion of those of those words is that it's not holistic. It's like I can do a thing outside of my life in general, that, that allots me sustainability. And I'm like, no, 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 this is like in everything. And uh, those relationships uh, between between family and building upon that, and and also like fracturing it, and and having the capacity to mend those relationships is profound in a time where, you know, we exist in this, like, I don't know, rebuilding trust is a lot more difficult than starting from nowhere and and receiving trust, you know. But I think that's a big part of what it means to be sustainable. Like, that relationship that you generate with your family is applicable uh, in, you know, these micro and macrocosms, right? Like, Uh, is there room for forgiveness on a human land base? You know, is there, is there room to, uh, in the instance of like flooding, right? Is there, is there capacity for us to forgive and move forward and, and rebuild that trust family is a great place to practice that as far as like, see what works and what doesn't work and then figure out how to apply that to larger systems, you know?
3: Yeah. Yeah. I just, I just think that there was really no, um, there was no other recourse actually for me to, to think in terms of uh, where do I stand in the land? Where do I belong? Um, And especially I think being here in unceded territory that I am really not, I don't belong to this land. Right. I don't even have any relationships uh, when I came here. And as soon as we, as we got to Vancouver uh, it was in the fall of 2019 and then the pandemic hit right after that so it's i'm only just starting to kind of be able to reach out and and start learning about what's happening here i'm i'm trying to do that while also really focusing on what we've got going in california and there's a lot there's a lot of relationships actually our our language is the family of our rela- of our language in chelon is related to indigenous languages all the way up to vancouver and it's it's really based on the land actually
1: yeah no following languages is is pretty incredible as far as navigating migration and movement of people even if like whole cultures didn't move the language kind of traveled beyond our borders just as like trade routes and and um, ways to share and then cultural practices also where there's similarities between dramatically different environments you see that through following language you see it through the extension of culture and the adaptation to to landscape you know mm-hmm. um yeah all of that I, I think is really fascinating i i think about that a lot with uh you know i'm i'm northern plains and we have um the hidatsa where like the Mandan and the Hidatsa, because we were, lived on the river and most of the tribes around the Great Plains were nomadic and would move, the Mandan and Hidatsa had like these villages, right? And those villages, there was a lot of agriculture that was embedded in that. So we could be, uh, uh, we could like remain in one region or one location for, for longer through, through seasons and and then like know the language of everybody else around you so that you could trade with them. Mm-hmm. Um, it's always it's always interesting like kind of following those language routes because that's that that's education right? Like that's that th- this is like primary knowledge of how to relate to your immediate community and then the extensions and um, following the land as like a, a as a way to do that. And you were mentioning this kind of like language route all the way up. The, the coast you're there now working in um uh uh teaching right at, at Emily Carr mm-hmm. what's wh- what what are you teaching are you teaching um like sculpture or uh uh what is what what, what are your what are you as a, a professor instructor
3: um i don't belong to any uh department or or program and like sculpture painting or i really um was super lucky, or just um, really made this my path that I teach as an interdisciplinary practice, which means I'm just basically teaching courses that I write. Um, And I've had you as a guest for one of those courses, um, which is uh, called Reciprocity in Land-Based Art. So it's thinking, it's a studio class, um, and it's thinking through both theorists of color who talk about land-based practices um, outside of history of uh, what we know in the canon of, of land arts, right? So it's it's completely the opposite of, of the history of land arts um, but it's giving a kind of decolonial and anti-racist premise for how we can relate to a land-based practice. What are some of those protocols? And then also how do we even um, how do we encounter history and bring that into our work or at least be motivated by it and aware of it. And then the students are doing projects that are um, rooted in the kind of practice that I have, which is walking, you know, they come from all different media. So I have painters, I have sculptors, I have people who are performance artists. I've, you know, they're, and they're undergraduates, so they don't, they're already experimenting. And so may, we have amazing students at Emily Carr, they're really, um, they're incredible. Um, so they're doing all kinds of things. So we're having discussion and and my goal as a, as a teacher is one day to be able to really have that kind of, you know, balance in the class where we're having active discussion, where I'm not the teacher, but we're actually talking just about things that we all care about, you know, and how do we relate that to our practices. And so I really wanna have, a, a space of pedagogy that feels that way, that feels like we're actually addressing the urgent things in our lives. And I, I'm not teaching them just art history, you know, or I'm not just teaching them some kind of technique. I'm teaching them how to identify their own technique, um, because we, we all bring our own technology and our own technique to whatever it is that we're experimenting with. And to be able to even think about what you're doing, like, uh, walking on land or doing some kind of weird repetitive thing as a technique. You know, students think that they have to repeat what they've seen in art history, but I want them to start developing their own their own language. But then I also teach a second-year class called the Mobile Studio, making art in a... I don't, I don't even remember the full. It's this kind of long witted title, but it's basically the Mobile Studio and thinking about how artists who through history have been displaced for various either political reasons environmental reasons or because we were all isolated in our homes during covid how do we have a practice during moments like that um, and so i'm still teaching that work and there's a, there's obviously a lot of overlap between the two the two classes but um one is a second year one's is a third and fourth year um, but that's my, that's my, that's the joy of my teaching right there is like those two classes are really my, you know, my babies. I've I've been working on them um, and inviting artists to come in and, and be voices. And I'd, I'd love to invite people from the community to come in and, and also teach. So we're, we're working in, in collaboration with another of my colleagues, Gwynessa Lam, uh, who grew up here, and she's also second-generation Chinese, and she's thinking about decolonization through an immigrant subjectivity. And so she we're thinking together about how do we grow this class into something that can address or have difficult conversations about allyship between immigrant subjectivity and indigenous people who, who this land belongs to. And that's kind of the way that the class is, is going right now. So that's the work that I'm doing at school. Um, and it, it feels good. I mean, it doesn't, it, it's also really difficult because we've had a lot of, um, you know, we're in the culture wars right now. And it, it's, I don't know if we've ever been out of the culture wars, but things are really ramping up. And so the fragmentation, keeping people together and in dialogue has been a real challenge.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. The the narrative of like culture, culture war, you know, if you really break that down, you you, what you see is the development of culture over time, we use the term war, but what we're what we're real, what we need to really kind of like describe is these moments of dissonance, you know, Mm -hmm. where, where, where there are ideas and influence from multiple paradigms colliding with one another. And that's actually, Actually how culture is maintained so rather than thinking of it as something that you win you know like a war I'm always like kind of fascinated with how do you reevaluate that relationship
2: mm-hmm.
1: and um and allow people to acknowledge the fact that like we can disagree we have always disagreed that's why there are so many different cultures around the globe
2: mm-hmm. is
1: out of these kind of intersections of collision and abrasion it's based on trying to find equilibrium and complexity where so much of our system right now is like moving towards a homogenous future where it's like, okay, the only way that we'll win is if we're all one thing. And I'm like, well, we already are all one thing. So how do we celebrate the complexity and the diversity of, of that, you know, rather than leaning into homogeneity, like, can we celebrate complexity? Can we celebrate that this isn't a war this is the growing pains of evolution you know this is the growing pains of development and maintenance how do we describe that i'm thinking all of this because as you're describing academia um that's a that's kind of a realm that i i'm i i haven't invested any thought in but uh there have been kind of like calls towards it and i have uh a hesitance to participate and yet I'm invited to go and do talks and, and do all of this stuff. So I'm like, oh, I'm kind of lecturing all year long anyway. You know, yeah. uh, without the without the safety net of like healthcare or anything <laughs> along those lines. I'm like, I'm like, what what does it look like? I'm always afraid that I won't be able to balance those responsibilities between having a class, developing relationships with the with the students, the like commitment to their development over time how do I, how do I balance that with like my family life and my art practice? So I'd love to hear anything that any insight you have on, on what that looks like.
3: Yeah, that's an, that's an amazing question. And I, it's something that I feel like I'm negotiating all the time, but I feel like, you know, becoming a mom, becoming a parent has really been good for me in terms of putting up those boundaries and I'm really good at organizing my time and saying no, when I need to, I've become better and better at saying no when I need to for my own mental health. And I think that's the way that any institution works. I mean, you're in, you're in relationship with so many different institutions and they'll take as much as they can And you just have to really be good at guiding them on what's okay and what you're willing to do. And so I'm really learning how to negotiate that in academia. And part of that I think is, um, God, I don't have any like words of wisdom really, but I think recognizing the structure that you exist in is the first one. I mean, when I met you, I had just stopped working for the Whitney Museum and boy, was that an institutional structure that I got an, an, an insane immersion into. And it was both incredibly painful, but it also at the same time taught, it was like a mini MFA uh, immersion and also just uh, looking at the the structure of museums, especially on that scale. And I was able to take a lot of the those experiences and apply them to the way that I navigate in academia. And so understanding the structure. And you have a lot of that knowledge. And you have probably more of that knowledge than I do because you have negotiated with so many different institutions. But I mean, I I I think it's not easy. You know, it's just, it's just really about understanding that you're more important. To them than they are to you and that's the crux of the matter and you have to keep reminding yourself of that every single day
1: that is definitely <laughs> one of the things um, uh, I'm, I'm always like you need me more than i need you like uh, I, you're built around this relationship and the power dynamic is all fucked up you know and when yeah. i say me i don't mean just me but like right. me as well but like artists in general cult people who maintain culture for for society i'm like Mm -hmm. you're a platform to present that stuff you're also like a year out you know um i'm like we're we're navigating space and developing work in the instance and adapting to the changes that we're seeing that are radical right now i mean they seem exponential at this point in uh in history and by time any work is presented at a museum it's already like a year old and like in a digital in a digital time of like instant instant I'm like a year is is dated (laughs) (laughs) and you're going to share this with everybody I'm like okay all right no and no no is a is also something that I'm that's something I'm learning right now. I was supposed to be on a on a teaching thing right now, and it was a pilot program, and it was like there were a lot of red flags like moving moving towards it. and with the, we couldn't get it like dialed in, and there was no like contract before we were supposed to go. And it got to a point where I was just like, for my own mental health, like you I could come up and do this, and it'll be a shit show, you know? 'Cause I'm at the end of my tether right now as far as all the things that I'm doing. Or I could say no, you know, and there will have to be structural transformation at the institution level. But for my own well being and my own like <laughs> sustainability, I'm like, yeah, I'm gonna have to go with no on this one. And that's huge, you know.
3: It's huge as an artist. Mm-hmm. You're one person, they're a whole institution. And and that's one thing that I also have to And I don't know if you have this experience in your practice, but to remind these institutions when they're working with you and they're making all of these demands for not only production, but all of the apparatus around the production of of a show that you're just one person. I don't have an assistant. I don't have like a team of people in my studio. I have like a very small 300 square foot studio And that's just not my, that's not my desire. And so I can only perform at a certain kind of timescale, whereas they have huge teams and budgets that are doing that work really immediately. And I think just reminding them that, you know, I'm just one person really making this happen
1: totally and they're acclimated to working with artists who do have like whole teams so they're so this is something that I keep thinking about right now and I'm really trying to kind of navigate is like do I develop a shop you know like um, a crew of people to help me make work because the demand and expectation and just like the opportunities you know that are available are set on these like really just like you, this is my studio. It's 20 foot by 18 foot. I have two stories, which is nice, you know, Um, so I can keep the dirty stuff down here and the clean stuff up there. But I'm still constantly like, uh, it feels like one of those number uh, puzzles where you have to like shift around the numbers in order to get them in the right order. Like that's what it's like working in the studio is like, all right, I got to put that thing away. So I can put this thing over there so that I can lay out that thing on on this table and you know you're just like constantly shifting things around but I just keep I keep thinking like do I want to build a team and have talked to other artists about who work in that in that sort of model and you know there are some artists who talk about it being uh, you know an extension of the French atelier system of like master and apprentice and like people building together to kind of like develop a, a work and, and you all you like paint out the the master's hand, you know, in the in the system of like working with all of these people. So like that, that's one model. I, I've also talked to another artist who mentioned it being like a um uh microeconomies, you know, that an artist practice can then if you if you have good relationship with community that you want to like help and support, you can build like microeconomies in relationship to your practice and extend these kind of like working relationships and economy, you know, built out of uh, your own personal practice. So I've been thinking about it a lot lately. I kind of want to put in motion that model, but I don't necessarily want to do it here because I am also a visitor to this land here in New Mexico. This is not my ancestral land. I am, I'm a visitor here, you know? So when I think about having a crew, I'm like, I would rather do this in north dakota you know i'd rather have this on either my reservation or the reservation i was born on which is like standing rock i'm kind of leaning more towards standing rock just for economic opportunities that's also where i like grew up so that's where my dad lives is down there so growing up i had kind of closer ties and kinships with with uh that community so i'm 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 thinking about all of this stuff do you think about this like um like where where you um, I want to know what your thoughts are on all that because I have plenty of my own.
3: Well, you know, when I think of what I see of your practice, your scale, I can see why you would think about this because of the scale and the 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 ferocity of your of your practice. You're just it seems like you're doing so many shows in a year. I mean I don't, I don't know how many shows you commit to to a year, but I can guarantee that I commit to way less than that. And I think it's because I'm a I'm just a slow person and I have to really honor that. I think slowly and you know when I when I was um really young I was thinking I was going to get into film. And I thought that I was going to get into film and photography and I started working for film crews. And I was so uh, turned off by the idea of a film crew and a whole team of people that were working together and that you were crunching budgets, you were managing like time schedules, you were filling out like all of these like tax forms and all of that to me sounds like a complete nightmare. And I don't think I would, I mean, if I had a team of people, I would feel so responsible that my, my, my practice could sustain for a long period of time, a group of people. And I think that would really put a wrench in my ability to produce and think freely I aspire towards a real kind of like openness and to real agency in what I think of as being free and whatever that means and whatever that becomes I don't know that that means that I take on a kind of like um productive production I don't want to produce at the time scale of capitalism I refuse to do that and I just, I don't see that as part of my thinking.
1: Yeah. I have a crew. Uh, her name's Ginger. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I love
2: she's ginger. about 15
1: people. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's it, it. whenever I start talking about building a, a building out of a, a shop, you know, she's like, who's going to manage that? You know? And I'm saying that right now with like half lazy eyes, you know, <laughs> exhausted eyeballs. Like, so I think that that's, that is kind of like an interesting, um, yeah, just like I like the idea of building, not uh, at the scale of of capitalism and the and the 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 expectation and the return on that. I like making things, you know. That's like my yeah. favorite part is the actual the actual making. So I'm half scared to do that because I'm like, how far away from construction will I get, you know, if I have a crew working with me to develop it? And that's, that's a little nerve wracking, but then simultaneously I spent hours doing like really repetitive tasks where I'm like, this could be somebody else, you know, I'm like, I could be, I could be yeah. building these things and putting them together. Uh, but first I need a thousand feathers, you know, or something like that, you know, where you're like, Oh God, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Here I'm, I go. sure,
3: I'm sure you can itemize really quickly a whole set of tasks that you don't need to do. I'm and I'm sure we both could, mm-hmm. um, and I've tried doing that, but I I don't trust. I also just don't trust the art world because that's really what this is for. I love being an artist, and I hate the art world. And I don't say that to be to create a dichotomy or to be overly simple, you know, simple about the art world. But I also understand that it's very fickle, and it's based on things that I have no control over, um, like you know, trends, like markets. Um, and so I don't trust that I would ever be able to sustain any of that. So, and I also think like you know, what's going to happen in the next 10 years for us? You know, what's going to happen in the next 20 years? We're going to have to start thinking, and I think this also implicates the uh, education system. And you guys are already thinking about this, but how do we, you know, we're going to have to think very differently about all of these systems of, of education for one. I think the first thing we have to think differently about what education is doing and how we are going to adapt with climate change and with the way that our world is working right now and I I just don't see that as being I don't think art and design schools are going to be around for the next 10 years I really don't and I I I just think that you know we're going to have to see a new model of education
1: well and art art and design will be you know no matter what whether the school is or not I think that's one of the things that really drives the idea of building a a shop for me is like I would actually, I know, I know who my audience is working within the system that I navigate. It's primarily like not people, a part of my community, you know, like the objects that are sold, the scale at which the cost, you know, or not the cost, the value of the work that's being sold. All of that is in a realm where I'm like, I barely have the faculties to relate to you as far as uh, buyer collector, and then also institutions that exhibit work, you know, I'm like, I'm trying to make these conversations around what a 21st century indigenous experience is, is really like, but I'm like, that's not my audience. My audience isn't a 21st century indigenous experience. It is, um, you know, unfortunately it's navigating um, these larger systems and trying to inform them. So I'm like, I'm making work for the museum, like for for the power structures that are embedded in that to understand an alternative and, uh, and a and a variation on on this thing, and that we too can adapt to these like really strange circumstances and 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 their own systems and protocols. You know, uh, we can push on the edge of that. But I'm like the best way for me to share my practice with my community is literally the practice, you know, where I'm like, if I could work with folks and actually share that, then, my, then whatever I, I want to be my community is literally working side by side. And I'm like, I'm sharing with you art as I understand it, the process, you know, the verb of art. Like I can share the production with my community and then share the object with the audience, you know? Yeah. Um, these are all the things that I'm like, And I don't know if I'm just trying to like justify, (laughs) which is totally something that I also do. I'm like, Oh, this is, this is potentially uh, hazardous and and dangerous, but I need to justify my movements (laughs) through this like risk, you know? So I I'm always, always questioning that. Ginger's really good at like making me evaluate, you know, why, Why, why do you want to do that? And I like, I, I have to convince both of us um like here's an idea but thank you for asking i rarely say thank you for asking that's after like 10 minutes of arguing around around the thing and then once i realize that she's actually developing uh, my capacity to describe my my trajectory you know I'm like mm, that was a gift you know thanks for arguing with me for 10 minutes about something that's pretty wild
3: yeah, yeah it is wild and i think that there are really a uh, Potential, I mean, what you're describing feels like, and there are other models for schools that are based on an artist practice or a land based practice or a particular type of making that's in relationship to things other than art history or other than, you know, Western colonial canon, um, and more in line with how do we build skills around not just making aesthetic objects but also objects that um we can use and have some kind of function or you know are thinking about you know these other kind of really complicated um relationships that we have with our environment and i there is an institute called the i think it's the De Chinta institute and it's um it's it's up here in canada and it's it's a whole different way of pedagogy and so i think that that there are models for that. And I think that that is really smart. And that would be really amazing to tie that into, you know, creative aesthetic art practice, because I think that's like where we've always come from. We've always, there was never, right, this distinction between art and utilitarian objects. And that's why I think that embodied practice is so important. But I think, you know, we're going to have to incorporate that everybody is you know we're all going to have to incorporate that into the way that we're thinking about learning and knowledge in a in a completely different way
1: yeah that is true Mm -hmm. I, I think I think that there is you know there's a long history of cultures developing through those very same variables right and like how we adapt to to these to these changes I think there has been kind of a systematic effort to remove creative thinking from culture, mm-hmm. you know, where it's like, let me, well, once again, let me preserve traditions, you know, with like air quotes mm-hmm. um, uh, versus like maintain customs. Cause it seems like our customs are more built around adaptability and transformation and, always allowed new technology to kind of like be incorporated in um, whether that's uh, a material or a set of beliefs you know or the environment itself kind of informing both of those things you know a new material and a set of beliefs because now you're water people and you didn't expect that to happen or you knew it was coming down the line so you have a tradition of building boats out of reeds that would grow, uh, you know, like, I don't know. I, I think that there's something really profound in, in all of that.
3: Well, it's really interesting because right now I'm trying to apply my archival skills and interests to helping to organize the archive of Chalone right now. And there's a lot, they're starting to digitize all of their, all of their correspondence, all of their the ways that they have used the archive to um, learn, relearn language or material practices or song ceremony, all of those things. And I'm trying to apply um, those archival skills to that. But at the same time, so it's really common um, for California, unrecognized California tribes to have an anthropologist on the tribal council. Usually these anthropologists are not indigenous and, but they come with this whole access to the archive, to the California archive. And I, I, in my correspondence with our anthropologist, I find it really interesting that this person is really invested in trying to encourage us to when we when we're when we're learning and reading and practicing certain techniques of, let's say, uh, making a rattle or making, you know, learning a certain word or something like that that we're really, really abide by what is in the archive, which is mostly written by white anthropologists. But also this idea that relearning and resuscitating, culture is about being true to what things were like in the 17 or 1800s and the fact that as if we've been static but when you look at the way that and you were saying this with your own community that you know we have been trading we have been speaking multiple languages with people who are in the vicinity we have always at least I know Cheluna has been one of the migrational tribes um, out of all of the Ohlone people. So we've always been moving. And um, when you think about that, that's, that's about adaptation, you know, that that's about, that's not stasis. And that's it also, there's always been this exchange of different practices and materials through all of that movement and all of those, um, the relationships that we have. And so this idea of, you know, that when you're relearning culture or trying to resuscitate a language that you are, that you have to stay in a very particular place that was like a hundred years ago or 200 years ago, rather than acknowledging all of the new relationships that you might have now as California indigenous people, is really interesting that there are these two, one very colonial and then the reality of what people are doing in relationship with each other. And that just feels so, um, uh, it, so it feels so the same in the art world where, the curators um especially curators who are not indigenous specifically curators who are not indigenous are thinking about what is indigenous contemporary art and even just like negotiating that kind of genre or being pigeonholed into um that kind of identity i think is a really tricky a really tricky and potentially static thing as well yeah that's something that i'm really trying to figure out i don't know I don't know where I exist, really.
1: <laughs> we'll let the future uh, <laughs> look back and describe where we are. I'm like too close to it right now. Looks like yeah. dots from here, you know. Yeah. um Pixel. but I think, uh, yeah, totally pixels. <laughs> it's a bunch of squares from from this close. <laughs> <laughs> Well, do you have any, and, you know, once again, thank you for having this conversation. I think it opens up, well, one, it was really just kind of nice to, to see you again and be able to chop it up on our own time timeframe. Uh, there are tons of questions that uh, I've been thinking about that you, I can tell you're also thinking about. So it feels like there is a, I don't know, sometimes in the studio removed from everything and only being in public. And when you're in public, you're like, in public, you know, um, public facing that the opportunities to just like chop it up with friends, family, kin, uh, is, is, uh, I, the rare treat of this podcast. So thank you for that. I don't feel, doesn't feel as lonely after this, after this talk, you know, that we're navigating the same strange spaces and that we're thinking about the transformation, you know, how do you transmute all of these (laughs) materials into something else? Um, do you have any insight for folks? Maybe let's say people wanting to move down the same path that, that we've navigated things that you could navigate that you were like, uh, I really didn't have to do that, but I can, uh, tell people (laughs) where to avoid it or what to lean into.
2: Mm
3: -hmm. Oh, wow. Um, well, I think just in terms of, longevity for me the important thing is having artists and practitioners in my life that are much older than me and being able to draw on their wisdom and having an example of what it means to have a lifetime in as an artist it's suddenly like when you can draw on people like that in your life it suddenly makes you think that some of those issues that you think are so huge are actually okay and not that huge and you can you can handle it so that's part of been my strategy of survival is to have elder more elder artists in my life and to be able to to talk to them and also um i think for the young people for me the biggest thing that i tell my students is how do you balance consumption versus making. And I feel like that's been always our practice is that we have to make every day. And that's one way we push against this machine of consumption. It doesn't matter what you're making. It could be food. It could be just a small material experimentation. It could be whatever it is, just to always every single day balance and, and be aware of how you're making things every day so that you're not just always in a, a place of consuming. And I think we all kind of fall into that where we consume too much and we never put it back out. And that's the way that I think you balance that energy. So that basically those have been my two things that I remind myself of all the time. <laughs> and I just want to so- say thank you so much. I forgot we were on a podcast. I just really felt like, we were just having a really needed conversation. I feel so isolated sometimes uh, because it's hard to even have time to have a studio practice with as a parent and a teacher that I don't reach out enough. So I feel like, yeah, this is medicine. So thank you so much, Jennifer And thank yeah, you. Yeah.
1: Thank you too. And thank you, Ginger. I, um, I have the same problems. I think, uh, ginger makes me feel like i'm helping her out by doing these interviews but i think really she's helping me out not get like uh uh, stuck in my own little tiny world and actually reaching out to friends and uh being able to talk and have these sorts of conversations Mm -hmm. so thanks Ginger.
3: thank you so much ginger really on so many levels like for all of the things and not just the podcast but there's been so many things that you've done Um, yeah just what a gift
1: yeah and thank you Christine this was an awesome conversation I also forgot that I was on the podcast but I have this uh, microphone dome and headphones on That I'm like "Hmm, maybe I just wanted to be heard really well but uh, (laughs) hyper aware of my little fidgety things i'm like okay none of it's making sound
3: <laughs> awesome awesome thank you guys